This morning we are on the second speech of God's in response to Job and his friends, uh, which is chapter 40 and 41. Uh, I'm going to read all of this. The, uh, this is the longest description of any creature in the Bible, period. So I, I think there, there's a significance there. So uh, God is responding to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the, light, in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourselves with glory, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in, all the, du- in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge you that your, your right hand can save you. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him. Where all the wild beasts play, under the lotus plants he lies, and in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident through the Jordan, though the Jordan rushes through his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or, with, or you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his flat, his skin with harpoons or his head with spears, fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false, and he is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? What is under the whole heaven is mine." I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. And who can strip off his outer garment? Who can come near to him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light. And his eyes are like eyelids of the dawn. 
Out of the mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. And his breath kindles coals, and a flame that comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as a lower millstone. He raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear or the dart or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins, and his under parts are like sharp potsreds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire, and he makes the deep boil like a pot, and he makes the sea like a pot ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On the earth there is not like not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high, and he is the king over all the sons of pride. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we ask your presence this morning as we reflect on these fearsome creatures, and we reflect on your work as the creator, the almighty creator, and the almighty redeemer of us. So be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Monsters fill our imaginations. They're everywhere uh, from classical mythology up to popular culture today. Um, There's monsters in fantasy novels and films and video games. Uh, You've got Godzilla and Dracula. You've got um, <clears throat> God, Dracula, I mentioned that, Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, you've got the Balrog from Lord of the Rings and Sarnon, Voldemort from Harry Potter, or more recently, the Demogorgon from Stranger Things, um, even video games, Lionel, which uh, from The Legends of Zelda. Well, you could add hundreds and thousands more monsters to this list. Our relationship with monsters is one of of fascination and horror. We are attracted to them and repelled by them at the same time. Uh, Most likely, you've probably never thought very deeply about your relationship to monsters or uh, the spiritual significance of monsters in your life or even God's relationship to monsters. Yet monsters play a bigger role in our lives than you might think. Now, even though we don't believe that any of these monsters I mentioned earlier actually exist in real life, we do have a sense that monsters do exist, that the monstrous exists. Uh, I was brushing up on my monster theory in preparation for this sermon. There is actually a whole field of studies, monster studies. And uh, I was wondering this question, you know, what makes a monster a monster? And I actually found a very nice definition from a monster of, of what a monster is from a guy named Jeffrey Weinstock, which I think nicely captures what a monster is. A monster, he says, is a thing that should not be but nevertheless is. 
The, monster, the existence of a monster raises vexing questions about humanity's understanding of and place in the universe. And the presence of monsters in the world undoes our understanding of the way things are and violates our sense of how they are supposed to be. I think this nicely captures um, the role that Behemoth and Leviathan play in the book of Job. Uh, Behemoth, but especially the Leviathan, are described with language of the monstrous. And their presence within creation causes us to question our own place within God's creation. They are a threatening presence to us. Um, and what's most interesting, it is God who gives us the description at length of these creatures. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats the grass like an ox. Behold, his strength and his loins and his power and the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. Sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. Or consider uh, God's description of Leviathan, which is much darker. And again, this is the longest description of any creature in the Bible. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. He kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth and in his neck abide strength and terror dance before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. And when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Leviathan is a terrifying creature. Terror dances before him. His, uh, he breathes fire. His skin cannot be pierced. His heart is made of stone. Right? This is a dragon, right? Before him, the hope of man is false, and he is laid low even the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Now, the burning question that probably many of you are asking is that why does God mention these creatures here in particular? Who and what are these creatures? And in what sense are they a, a response to Job's suffering? It's helpful here to remember the context of these speeches um, and what God is trying to accomplish. In God's first speech, he's again responding to Job and his friends. God, in the first speech, especially the second half of it, gives uh, Job a tour of creation and catalogs a variety of wild animals within creation. He draws attention to their unique life, um, their distinct characteristics, the ways in which they depend upon God, for their existence and survival. And the first couple chapters are, are especially meant to humble Job, um, but also to restore him to a sense of wonder at, in the face of creation, right? So God gives him this planet Earth tour of creation to show him the beauty and the complexity and the wildness of what he made and the wisdom, really, of God's ordering of the universe. 
And many people, they read the second speech, which is, we know there's two speeches here because um, Job responds to one and then, uh, then God speaks again. Many people read the second speech as simply a kind of extension of the first speech, but he, where God just focuses on two animals in particular, the most glorious uh, within creation. And many commentators, modern commentaries in, in particular, uh, would interpret, do interpret behemoth and the Leviathan as, as uh, just normal animals, literal animals. Um, the behemoth is a hippopotamus and a Leviathan is a crocodile. And these animals, of course, both were quite familiar um, during this time and place. And I do not disagree that uh, these descriptions of these animals um, are, you know, of these monsters are rooted in kind of crocodiles and hippopotamus. But there seems to be more going on here than just literal animals. There's something very disturbing, especially about the way that God describes Leviathan. And I think, is it not the case that all monsters, all descriptions of monsters, reflect some creature with in creation that we know or that we're familiar with? A part of what makes a monster so scary and terrifying is the way in which the familiar, um, that which is safe, that which is even wondrous, can all of a sudden become a source of menace and deadly terror. <clears throat> I think we're confronted with more than just animals here. I think we're, we're confronted with a symbolic depiction of chaos and evil and destruction within the creation. And this would have been a very common way of interpreting the figure of Leviathan and Behemoth within the ancient Near Eastern uh, worldview, which would associate these figures with chaos and destruction. Um, and you have in the scriptures many uh, references to Leviathans, uh, there's a couple in our, our uh, worship folder this week. One in particular um, from Isaiah, the prophet, foretells the destruction of the Leviathan, that in that day the Lord with his hand and great sword, strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Behemoth and Leviathan are not just creatures but they are also symbols of the shadow side of creation. They represent the extreme danger and destruction that is just hovering around the margins of God's good creation. And I think this is important um, because I don't think we can adequately understand Job's response to God, the second response to God, if these uh, animals are just mere animals, just an, an, an extension and an intensification of the first couple chapters. The, the playwright George Bernard Shaw, um, you know, Riley observed of the book of Job, if he says, if I complain that I am suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, can you make a hippopotamus? <laughs> um, there's a sense here that if these are mere animals, um, it doesn't quite adequately answer, I think, Job's questions or our questions. And it's what's interesting, as I, I was reading, this is an aside, sorry, uh, as I was reading many commentaries on this, many more modern commentaries see these as just animals, and they have very good reasons, but each commentator, when they get to the end of their commentary, will then express disappointment that God didn't say more. <laughs> I'm like, well, there is more here. 
Job's response to, um, to God after this speech is quite remarkable. He says there's something that changes in Job, I think, that is, comes about because of these, this second speech. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The question is, what has God shown Job? What has he seen? I think what God has shown Job is, gives him a picture of, of the mysterious presence of evil in the world. But not just the mysterious presence of evil in the world, but a promise that he, as the Lord and the creator of all things, can contain it and will ultimately defeat it. One of the things that becomes clear as you read through the book of Job, when it's Job and his friends talking, is that they have a very narrow view of evil, that either um, Job is suffering because of his sin, and that God is punishing him directly because of his sin. And so the evil he's experiencing is a result of punishment for wrongdoing, so that Job himself is the monster the moral monster, if you will. But Job's response is, no, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a monster. God's the monster. What both, both parties miss is there's actually, there's another possibility. And I think what God introduces here is, is that there is a third possibility, that there is evil in this world that exceeds us. And that part of wisdom is having an understanding of that reality. There are monsters on the loose within creation. All the monsters that fill our films and literature and video games and fairy tales, they, they represent something really real. There are real monsters that, that seek to devour and to destroy us. And we saw one of the faces of these monsters, yet again, this past week when a, woman, a gunman, a woman, uh, entered into a, a Christian school in Nashville, and slaughtered three children and three adults. You know, and we, as a culture, you know, we, we wrestle with these shootings every time they happen with increased frequency, and we talk about need for greater mental health and checks and our need for, for more sensible gun laws and all these different things. But the reality is this, that this is a terrifying pattern that keeps repeating itself, and that whether it's the political left or the political right, even if they were able to get everything they wanted, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't change. There, there's a way that the evil of this, this monstrous evil exceeds us, and we seem to be powerless to stop it. And it's not just school shootings. You can think of many different monstrous realities of evil in our culture that, that we bang our heads against again and again and again, and we don't seem to be able to make any difference. And it's not just because we're politically divided or we have the wrong ideology of how to deal with it. The fact of the matter is, is that these monsters, they have a, a spiritual and supernatural uh, reality to them that overpowers us as human beings. We talk about Satan, the demonic, the powers, the principalities. These things are real. The potency and evil of evil in the world, it's, 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 um, it's the way that it resists change is due in part to this fact that evil in the world is organized supernaturally, spiritually speaking. There's an intelligence there. And that doesn't mean that we exonerate ourselves as human beings who are perpetrators of moral evil. 
We don't let the person who slaughtered these in these shootings off the hook. And we don't not address the, the problems within culture and of, of social structures that perpetuate evil. But in recognizing that there is monstrous evil in the world, supernatural, spiritually speaking, it, it humbles us <laughs> to realize is that this evil is greater than us, that all of our best efforts are still futile. Last week I talked about how uh, the problem of evil um, isn't simply, you know, how can a good God exist while evil exists? The problem of evil isn't, you know, whether God and evil can coexist. That The problem of evil is, can this God be trusted? But there's actually another layer to the problem of evil, and it's just, it's evil, right? <laughs> we can debate all we want whether God exists in the face of evil, um, and even if you deny God's existence, evil still is there and you have to deal with it. You have to confront it. Not believing in God doesn't put you in any better position to deal with evil. Now, Job, of course, he never denies God's existence or questions God's existence in the face of evil. But what he does do is he questions God's ability to deal with evil properly. God's competence, if you will. And there's a presumption in his questions that he could run the universe better than God. And God says to Job, this is the beginning he says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? God wants to know, Job, how are you going to deal with the evil? How are you going to deal with the evil? And so God says, well, if you want to take a go at it, you're welcome to do that. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourselves with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look around. <clears throat> Everyone who was proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread him down, tread down the wicked where they stand, hide them all in the dust together and bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that you, that your right hand can save you. <laughs> but oh yeah, one more thing. Uh, there are these monsters, these beasts called behemoth and leviathan. I should probably tell you about them before you try to take the job. See, the reality is, is in the midst of suffering, when we question God, and, and I've, as I've said in earlier sermons, I recommend you go back and listen to them if you haven't, that there is a way that God invites us to wrestle with him, to challenge him. That's one way we kind of hold on to God in the midst of suffering is by, by, by wrestling with him, questioning him. Uh, but there, there is a way that when we suffer and we question God that we, we say, God, I don't need your help anymore. <laughs> you have not come through to me as I expected. I've got this on my own. And there's, there's a folly there because we do not know what we're up against. We do not know what we're up against. One of the reasons that commentators do not believe that behemoth and Leviathan are, are um, symbolic of evil and believe they're literal animals um, is because it says that God created them. They were the first amongst God's creation. So that, that, that challenges a lot of people. And of course, what I've been saying from the beginning and what the scriptures maintain throughout is that God is not the author of evil. God is not the cause of evil. And there's, there's a way that when God describes these, these beasts, there's almost kind of like a joy in the description. Like, look at this, Job. This is like, there's a kind of wonder. God is fascinated by the fierceness of these creatures. So the question then is, if God is not the author of evil, if God does not create evil, how can these creatures then be uh, symbols of 
of chaos and evil and destruction within creation. Um, and this brings us, I think, to the complexity of the biblical understanding of evil. From start to finish, again, the Bible is clear. God is not the author of evil. Evil is an alien presence within creation. It's very important to understand that evil is an alien presence within creation. It does not have its own independent status as something God created. God does permit evil to exist. That is part of the mystery of the Christian understanding. God permits it to exist, but he does not cause it to exist. Evil enters creation when God's creatures turn away from the creator. Evil comes into creation when God's creatures turn away from the creator. When they become maligned internally, when they become distorted and they rebel. See, <clears throat> it is through perversion of the good that you get the monstrous. It's through a perversion of the good that you get the monstrous. Again, this is why all monsters resemble some creature, right? Some figure, some combination of various animals like, you know, spliced together or, or some human-like form that has now a ghastly figure. I think the great literary and film version of this is Gollum or Smeagol from The Lord of the Rings. You remember Smeagol or Gollum? Before he became what he was, he was like a hobbit-like creature, delightful. But after he came into possession of the ring and loved the ring and idolatrous love, he became this sort of ghastly creature and beast that's turned in upon himself to where he's not even recognizable for what he was. This is how, this is what sin does. And in the Bible, when, we talk, when God talks about sin, the scriptures talk about sin, there's a way that... It, when we become, when we become I, I, idolaters, we become beast-like. We become less than human. That's the logic of turning against God. And that, that's how it works, right? That, that, that the monstrous is a perversion of the good. It's us turning away from God. This is the story of Satan and the fall of the angels, right? One of God's most glorious angels in heaven turns away. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. We, and then in Adam and Eve, we turned away from our creator and we become corrupted and disfigured. And again, part of the mystery of evil in the Bible is how to, can this happen? How can good creatures turn away from their creator? We don't know. That's part of the mystery. God's description exposes us to the shadow side of, of creation, to the ways in which good creatures become sources of terror and destruction for human beings. And there's a way that the evil that we commit as human beings takes on its own life, its own culture, and this, that, that, that we seem powerless to, to, to control. There's another important uh, truth, though, about God's poetry of the monsters that I want to draw your attention to. Again, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, cosmology, Figures like Leviathan and Behemoth weren't just creatures, but they were, they were like gods. So a Leviathan would have been like a, like a god, but, a, but a, a terrorizing god. And in this world, um, this ancient world, they had a cosmology that was very dualistic, which means it was very, so it was good versus bad. Good gods versus bad gods. 
And there was a war between the good and the bad that always sort of expressed itself through bloodshed and violence and conflict within the cosmos. Now, I think in many ways in our modern culture that we have become more and more like this in a very secularized form. It's very much good versus evil, good gods versus bad gods. It's a battle. It's a zero-sum battle waged through violence and blood. It's all or nothing. But I think it's really important to understand as a Christian that this cosmology, this, this dualistic cosmology has no basis whatsoever in the biblical understanding of the universe. No basis, because there's no true rival to God. I mean, there is, and that's part of why I think how God, why the subtlety of the poetry here is that on the one hand, God wants to express the terror of these monsters, but he wants you to be clear that these are nothing more than, to, to us, they're terror, but to God, they're like pets. They're like ferocious dogs that he has in a chain. And again, we don't understand why God permits these, these creatures to exist, but they exist nevertheless. But God wants us to know for sure, you should fear them. You cannot stand up against them. But to me, none can stand before me. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Of Leviathan, God speaks. Who then is able to stand before me? See, part of God's thing here is it's like, <laughs> I'm so much more fearsome than these creatures. Who has given me, to me that I should repay Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God's speech uh, leaves Job with a sense, I think, of assurance and comfort that he can contain the monsters and defeat, defeat the evil. But we don't have any sense of how God will do that or when he will do it. And you might expect that God would meet force with force, right? You know, if God is, is, is more powerful and almighty and then you can't even compare it. God could, like an ant, he could just be like, you know, here, Leviathan, I'm just going to put my finger on top of you and smash you down. But that's, that's not how God does it. I think the picture we get of how God will ultimately defeat the monsters, um, we get a picture of this in our primary story this morning from the triumphal entry. We get this picture here where God turns upside down all of our expectations of how he will overcome and how he will defeat the monsters within, on the loose within creation. Remember the triumphal entry, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's his last sort of journey. He is not going to leave Jerusalem as a, a living man. And the triumphal entry has this sense that here's the true king coming in. But he's a king that is going to the cross, and he will not receive a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And as he enters into Jerusalem, he doesn't enter in on... on um, you know, a Clydesdale horse. He, he could ride a behemoth in, probably, or a leviathan, but he doesn't do that. He actually rides on a donkey with a colt. And actually, the, there's a great detail and attention in all the Gospels to these animals, right? A donkey is a humble animal. It's a stubborn animal, but it's a humble animal. Zechariah the prophet, again, is quoted here in our Matthew text. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus doesn't ride the Leviathan into Jerusalem. He rides a donkey. <laughs> and, and this is a symbol here, again, the animal plays an important role to say that, that this is a humble creature but the, and a stubborn creature, but the Lord has tamed it. And actually, the way that he will ride to defeat all the monsters is actually on the back of this humble beast. 
It is not through overwhelming force and power and violence and bloodshed and the violence of the monsters that God will overcome the monsters, but actually through humility and through gentleness and through vulnerability. And so when Job cries out, you know, why from this place? When God ultimately goes to defeat the monsters, he does not do it from on high. He actually does it from below. He enters into where Job was as a sufferer. He takes up Job's position, and the monsters consume him. But it's sort of like, you know, the monsters eat him up, but then all of a sudden you don't realize that he's actually being being eaten up. He ate them up. On the cross of of Christ, on the cross, the, the Lord, he confronts the monsters and he conquers them. Let's pray. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for the witness of your word, the encouragement it is to us. Lord, all of us in different ways are confronted by um, the monsters, whether it's the monsters within us, the, the, the power of sin of our flesh, or whether it is monsters outside of us that we, we cannot con- control, that we cannot predict, that cause us to be, live in fear at times. Lord, help us to know, God, that you meet us in our suffering and in our vulnerability. And um, just as you uh, defeated the monsters from that place, that you defeat them um, in us from those places of suffering and vulnerability. Lord, teach us to trust and depend upon you in a new way and have confidence um, that you are with us. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.